Welcome to the Dale Carnegie Leadership Podcast Series. I am your host, Mark DeStadler. Over the next few interviews, we'll have the opportunity to listen to a diverse group of leaders, giving us insights around how we can be successful leading our teams in 2021 and beyond. This episode was an absolute blast. Tim Rose from Solar City will be sharing insights around how we can make some massive changes in terms of our career paths and find the job or the role that stimulates us. He gave us great insight around mental health and how we can find a better focus in terms of balance and fundamentally how our values is the critical part in terms of finding direction on where we're going. Don't miss out. Tim, thank you so much for, for joining us for today's podcast. Let's maybe just start off about a little bit about yourself. So who are you? And, and more importantly, what's been your journey up until this point in a short space of time? Okay, my name's Tim Rose. I, I'm currently working in the, in the energy sector, the low carbon energy sector, but yeah. I, I started in a, in, a, in a very different place to that. Yeah, just to maybe go back a little bit at the beginning, I actually... I was an, did an engineering degree, uh, so I was a scientist at school. And I think the one thing I would say about my early period, before I really got into my first my first career, is 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 that I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I think I was one of those people who probably followed an idea of what sort of thing is good, you know, what sort of subjects are good to get it, you know, have a good job and career and all that sort of stuff, but not yeah. really having that passion and knowledge of what I wanted to do. So that's probably where I came from. Yeah. So I did a chemical engineering degree, but then didn't really want to pursue that once I'd done it. I didn't really want, want to work in a, in, in, in sort of chemical factories and, and oil refineries. And I thought that working in the defense sector or working on large scale stuff, big stuff that governments do would be really kind of exciting. And if yeah. you add a bit of good technology to that, uh, you know, that sounded exciting. So I, I actually ended up, my first role was in the aerospace industry and in working in military aircraft. Okay. And I then followed a, a probably 15 year career in that business, doing lots of different things, probably not doing any one role for more than a couple of years. Okay. So working, started actually off on a project management um, sort of training scheme, but then I was I, I sort of moved between you know, project management, commercial management. I went into general management, strategy and planning, mergers and acquisitions, and sort of ended up doing all sorts of things within a big corporate, as a lot of people do. But I think the common thread is that for me, again, all the way through that, I didn't really know where it was taking me. Okay. So it was opportunity led, yeah. you know, and. And if you're kind of half decent at, at doing stuff, people say, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And you go, oh, that sounds all right. And it kind of takes you up the, up the ladder. And you end up somewhere which, you know, you may, you might consider to be, you know, a good role, quite successful, but it, it isn't where you plan to be because you didn't really have a plan in the first place. So that's yeah. kind of what I did for 15 years in, in the aerospace sector. But all that time in the aerospace sector, I think it's important going to where I've got to now. Yeah. One of the things that was key is that I, I, I'd never really felt comfortable with the, the product I was working with. Yeah. So even from, even from day one or week one, there were some kind of issues with it going into meetings, talking about 
aircraft carrying, you know, very dodgy kind of weaponry. Yeah. That made me think, uh, have I made the right decision here? But I stuck with it because I didn't know what else to do. So 15 years later, I got, I got to a fairly senior position in that uh, industry. Then what was the kicker for change for you? Well, there have been a few things, really. I mean, I'd had a few periods during that time where, you know, I was pretty unstable, I think. And I, I, I think uh, I was probably one of these insecure overachievers. So, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, competitive, self-competitive, quite a lot of self-competitiveness, wanting to, you know, get to certain, you know, achieve certain things or, or really just continue to, to, to work hard and, and, and get on. And that caused me a few a few wobbles, which were sort of warning points for me as well. Yeah. But I think at the end of the day, despite some times in that industry where I, I, I did have fun, you know, for a, for a few a few roles, it was just that realization I think that I was doing something that wasn't really wasn't really firing me up. Yeah. And then the thoughts at actually at the age of nearly kind of just short of forty, that you know I could be here until retirement and. You know, that'll be a nice big pension and all this sort of stuff. But wouldn't that be dull looking back, yeah. not having moved? And particularly if I was disappointed that I hadn't done something else. So I just, so I quit just before I was 40, actually. And with, with a clear path or was it more just with, like... With no path whatsoever. Okay. I and mean, in fact, it was one of the, one of the happiest days. I mean, I have to say that was a really, you know, great moment. Because I, I just decided, I, at the time I was into, into mountaineering and, and climbing. Okay. I've uh, been doing quite a lot of that with a buddy of mine in the Alps. And, and, I, and I had this passion, this idea, I wanted to go and climb this mountain in South America. And that turned into this kind of project. And, and I managed to persuade this friend of mine, this, my climbing buddy, to take some time off. And we went to, uh, to Peru and, and, and did that. But that was the beginning for me of just a, at least a year of, I didn't know what I was going to do afterwards, but just to take some time off. So I went traveling at that time. And okay. it was a complete you know, break from from what I've been doing. And it was fantastic. That decision point was one of the, the best things. That feeling of you're doing something, even though you don't know where it's going, it, it felt like absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah. And then after that, what was the next step? So I got back from that with? after a, a, a year or so. I don't know why, but something in me um, sort of steered me towards renewables. And I started looking at doing courses and training, you know, a, a, an MSc in, in renewable science. I was offered a place and, and, you know, at Imperial doing something like that. But I, for some reason, again, I decided not to take that time out, having been away for a year and just get into something. So I joined a, a small startup company in, in wind turbines. And that was just, um, it's pretty random, really. I was really fishing around for all sorts of stuff. I'm mean, I talking yeah. to people who were importing tea and, you know, <laughs> doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things. But this, there was something about renewables that was obviously drawing me. And yeah. that's where I got into. So I spent some time with this wind turbine company startup didn't work but three years there and then moved into solar where I did spend seven years and had a and that was that was great I mean it was um again I think coming back to the idea of values that was clearly much better for me I suddenly felt there was something I was I was making a difference it was the right place to be and working with a bunch of great people with really similar ideas and really wanted to wanted to sort of change change the world but again I think I got into that fell into that sort of habit of I didn't know what I wanted to do I didn't know whether I wanted to run the company or whether I wanted to be in you know commercial or delivering stuff so again I spent 10 well sort of 10 years in that whole industry just sort of moving from opportunity to opportunity mainly through business development and yeah. sales actually and yeah. subsequently you're finding so where are you now in terms of that journey and that so path? I spent 
seven years in the solar industry and I ended up running a um, Europe and Africa business for, for a company called Solar Century. And that was great, the lovely people. But again, I think I got to a point where that role just wasn't, it wasn't the right fit. We were changing what we were doing as a business and, and I was feeling I was doing a lot more administrative stuff, kind of managing careers, people's careers and, and you know, hiring and firing stuff rather than doing stuff. So I left there. And I'm now working in a, a low carbon, it's a business really that's focused on electric vehicle infrastructure and, and large batteries. So we're really trying to put the infrastructure into to enable large scale EV uptake in the country. And in terms of the size of this current business that you're in now, how, how big are you? So this is, a, this is a 15, it's about 15 people. It's got that wonderful, small startup feel about it. Although, I mean, it's only about a year, year and a half old, but it was just taken over by, by a big energy company literally two or three weeks ago. Okay. So that's going to be interesting in terms of how it pans out for the, for the guys in the country. But so far, that's, that's good. It seems like a good fit and they're, they're kind of hands off. So we're still very much working as a, a business. Really, this is, this, is, this is, I think, building something that, that is going to be really useful for the, for the country. And, uh, so I guess... From my perspective, is there seems to be you've worked for the big bad beast in terms of a large organization that has probably loads of layers to it. And then you've almost shifted into one of these small startup mindsets where everybody has to just be a jack of all trades and getting involved. And I'm sure there's a lot of learning that has come with that. What would you say from your you know 10 years or 15 years that you had with um, the defense part of your journey? What were some of the key takeaways, both good and bad, that could be quite valuable to share with us in terms of your understanding of good leadership? I think probably helping people work out, and what, what would be a really helpful thing is, is helping people work out what they really like and what they don't like doing or being cognizant of that. Okay. I think there is a, uh, you know, what I found in, in that industry, and there were a lot of good people, leaders in that industry, and there were a lot of sort of old traditional leaders, you yeah. know, um, sort of leaders and managers. But I think the, yeah, the ones who were good were kind of really interested in, in you as an individual and what made you tick. And actually, I think it was quite difficult for me to be open about that because I knew I wasn't in a place that I was really particularly happy about. It's quite difficult to be really honest about it. I mean, certainly yeah. you can't sort of just go and talk to your boss and say, you know, hey, what, you know, yeah, it's all great, but I really don't like what we're doing here. Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't work. So people who are a bit intuitive about that, I think, are... Yeah, it's, it's basically about having being able to find that connection with the people they work with. Definitely, you know, are going to help the people who work for them as well. I think in some of their career choices. So. What, what would you say to somebody who's finding themselves in a similar situation? Might not be the fact that the product they represent is not something that, but yeah. they're finding the environment no longer stimulates them. What advice would you give them, considering your experience and what they can do? Be bold. Is my advice. So what I, you know, I don't, you can't regret really anything because you are where you are as a result of everything that you've done. But if I were talking to my daughter about this, which I will be in a few years time, she gets that. My advice would be know what you like doing and try and follow that. If you find yourself in a position that doesn't work for you, or you really think you're, you're, you know, there's something that's not fitting and you can't quite describe it, then look elsewhere, do something different, don't stick with it. And I think the danger is you can, a lot of people can, I think, get, they fall into it or a rut and they don't really know what else they could be doing and then haven't got quite the uh, ability to just, you know, to take a big step and, yeah. and go and do something else. Because there's stuff out there. And particularly if, you, if you've got a bit of, bit of capability and, a, and obviously helpful as 
you have the more experience you have behind you, but you, you can find other things. There's always other things out there that are interesting. So. Yeah, because I think one of the things that I'm seeing, especially with some of the clients that we work with, is you've got an individual who's got 10 years experience as a lawyer, really good lawyer, yeah. but they no longer want to do what they're yeah. doing. And their biggest problem, as they would say to me, is like, Mark, who's going to employ me? Who wants to employ a lawyer to go do sales? I don't know how to sell. I don't know how to start a business. What would you say to those individuals who have potentially that risk-adverse mindset to change? <laughs> I've had the same conversation with a friend of mine actually yeah. just last week who's been in a particular industry for, for decades yeah. and now really doesn't want to be there anymore. And it's a, it's a difficult industry to be in. And he's uh, personally thinks he's, he's not performing, etc. And my advice to him was be bold, you know, and do the, he's, the thing is, I think people can, in that sort of situation you talk about, you can get stuck with a, you know, you have a big salary, you've got a big um, infrastructure and house and everything around yeah. that goes with it. But there are still things you can do, I think, to change your whole lifestyle. And it's, it's about lifestyle. Lifestyle is so much more important than, than that career position. And I think it's a hard thing to learn and understand. And it's taken me, you know, I don't know, 30, 30 years to kind of realize that it's not, the career itself is not the important thing for me. It's about, it's about what I'm doing. It's about the joy that I'm getting out of that. And it's about the fit that I have with it. Yeah. So that's what I said to my friend the other day. And that's what I would send, say something like that. But it, it's a big step. It's a really big step to tell somebody to do. And, I, and, it's, and it's not surprising that people won't, don't feel they can make that leap because it really is about changing your whole, or can be about changing your whole, your whole existence. Yeah. You know, where you live, <laughs> where your kids go to school, all that sort of thing. I mean, cast around and you have to talk to people. You have to talk to people. You have to find out what's out there and get people's, other people's views on what you, you can and can't do. But I, I think it's... Uh, try and be as bold as you can in the decisions you make because it will work out. Yeah. It will work out. What for you was the big learning by going through that process? What was your big takeaway as a result of you finally jumping ship and just starting a new career path? I think the big takeaway for me is the key thing was finding something, finding a, a, an industry that was positive and fitted with my view of where the world's going, maybe my politics, etc. You know, yeah. it was so important to be engaged in something for me that is about making a big change, you know, making a big change to the way we all do stuff and really moving away from the sort of the more money driven side of, of things, if you like. So, yeah. so I think, yeah. And as I've moved more and more, it's been, uh, I've learned it's more about, you know, doing stuff that works for me, not stuff that makes money for shareholders. Yeah. And, and that, that is a, a, you know, the big thing I think. And, it gives me also what I've, I've managed to do for myself is, is is rebalance my life between work and other things and, and include a whole load of other stuff that I realise I probably haven't been paying attention to that okay. I want to do you know, over, the, over the past years. So. Because that's really interesting because there's actually something we find ourselves talking to people about is, is this idea around values and, and then the importance yeah. of that. Tell us a little bit more about your journey and understanding the, its importance and more importantly, what it means to you now as a leader? I think there's a totally a difference in the way you behave at work and the way you react, with, you, you perform with other people, the way you interact with other people. And yeah. I, I was very good at appearing to be very level, appearing to be very capable and appearing. To, and I was, I, I've been throughout my career actually fortunate enough to be pretty good with customers and meeting people and be able to get on with people and, yeah. and sort of have that 
sort of that relationship. But but for me, there was always this wall between what I was doing at work and what I was like outside. I mean, really quite different. So I think people would have thought, I, you know, at work, I kept my nose clean. I was pretty conscientious, but yeah. um, serious kind of individual. The thing that's changed as a result of finding those values or working towards those values that really fit for me is that that, that doesn't really exist anymore. You know, it's all part of, of my life. And I, the way I now interact with the people at work is, you know, it's very much, it's just who I am. And I think the great thing is finding a group of people who are exactly the same as that. So I think it allows you to have, just have, just be much more yourself at work if you can work in an environment which fits with your, yeah, with your, with your, yeah. with your values, with your purpose, with, with where you really want to be. So. so, so who is that person now? So if, if, you know, if I happen to come into your organization, what type of leadership do you now believe is, is how individuals should approach motivation, should approach supporting people from, from your learnings over these last 30 years? I think I've seen the people who really take people with them yeah. uh, have been, and this has been in a couple, couple of these companies that I've, I've, I've worked in mo- most recently. Yeah. They've been, yeah, they've been change agents. They've been people who, for example, started out in one, one side of the fence. In the, I, I'm in the environmental sort of space. Yeah. One of the heroes of our industry, and who used to be the chairman of, of the, one of the businesses I used to work for, started off in B, in in shell actually he was one he was a he was in in shell but then you know saw the light moved into greenpeace and became a he's now a real sort of uh, you know a real guru in this in the, in the sustainability and, and and change space so that's an example i think of somebody who people will just follow because they you know they they exude a belief in in doing things their way even if it, sometimes that might seem you know, it seemed a bit crazy, um, but uh, that individual had a huge following and just was able to, even though he, for example, wasn't a natural operational leader, yeah. you know, he's one of those guys that people just look to and love to talk to and love to hear from. Similarly, the guy, the guy I'm working with now is a, is, is, is he's a, a founder of the, one of the founders of the business I'm working in now, you know, super emotional guy and comes at it purely from the heart, really. Yeah. And I think that, really gets people on board. So that sort of leadership is the sort of thing that I think wins you, yeah, wins you friends, wins you support and gets people to want to actually work with you in the company. I think, you know, I'm a little bit more wary of the, you know, the structured kind of the textbook management approach. And I hasten, it's a difficult thing for me to say, I've I'm probably, ne- I've never really been interested in that. And I've never, I never approach leadership from uh, reading books. In fact, you know, the idea of reading management or leadership books has just been a complete turnoff to me all my career, which some of my friends find quite strange, but I, I, I've just really never read those sort of books. I've yeah. not interested me. And because I think for me, leadership as a subject in itself, it's, that's not the thing that excites me. It's what, you, what you're doing and what you, where your direction is and where you're taking people. That's what's... Yeah, so what, yeah, is that what I was going to ask? What, what does excite you? Well, what excites me is being in a space where I think I can see we're, we're sort of, we're a small, hopefully, maybe not yet, but we'll become more influential leader in, in taking the country, in, you know, and the world, hopefully, in, in the direction it needs to go to really address the big problems that we've got. So for me, I feel I would like to be somewhere near that cutting edge, you know, 
whether it's true or not, that's the feeling I want to have. And I think um, being at that space in that that sort of edge of things is you know excites me. It just makes me feel like we're doing something something new. And if it's in the right sort of uh, if it's in the f- space that's making a difference. So, yeah. So yeah, for me that is that is about climate. It's about climate. My passion is in that area and biodiversity. These are the, these are the things that kind of get me really excited. And anything that you know supports a bigger global change in the way that we 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 move towards a world that works in that sense and that we can we can sustain is good and that that's what i tap into and that's what the people i work with tap into and i think that's what our leaders in the business are all it's clear that that's where they're genuinely hooked into yeah. and i think therefore you you get a natural flow from the company around you if you have leaders and you have people who all have those same values and the same purpose. So, you know, you talked about potentially now, not potentially going through a merger or where you're becoming part yeah. of a bigger business. What do you see as the biggest challenge for your organization not to lose all this great stuff that you've done by bringing 15 people together? Yeah. Right, what you've done. Yeah. What do you foresee as maybe the challenges? I think that is a big challenge. I mean, it's early days and, and I have to say the relationship looks very good with, with the, the, you know, the new owners who yeah. very much wants us to carry on and do what, we, what we've, we've been doing and, and, and thinks that we, we probably better doing that on our own than you know, trying to break it up and do it in a different way. The big challenge is though, and I've seen this in, in, in other companies, is as they grow, they lose that sort of small, close-knit family-ish feel. And that makes a big difference. People don't know each other in the way that they did before. Yeah. There's more turnover and in terms of heads. And it becomes more more corporate. I mean, it, it slowly but surely, as you as you kind of grow from a, a company of 10 of 10 to 20 people to one of 150 to 200 people, there's a process there which is just a gradual change. And, and it's part of becoming a corporate. The, the, and the, the, I, we all look um, from the outside at companies like Google and think, mm, they look like, very playful and fun. And how do they do it? But I, I'm sure they have their own you know, challenges in terms of how they... They they maintain that sort of close knit feeling. Uh, it's, but it's so important. I think I think some people like it and thrive in those environments, in those bigger environments. But I, I think for some of us, the smaller community is a better way of getting people to work together on multiple things. So, with that in mind, what would you say to? There might be a whole bunch of listeners who are at that point where they're fifteen, twenty individuals, and they're looking for that next element of seed funding or to to go into the bigger picture. What would you say is the key thing for them to consider so that they can try and maintain that family feel or that type of culture <laughs> for as long as possible, if anything? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a tricky one, isn't it? So it's the cultural fit. I mean, ideally, that's what you want with your uh, your investors, your, your new owners, and if you can get it, you're lucky. And I think a lot of companies, you know, are not that lucky and needs must. And it's a real challenge when you need money. You need money, and and I've seen that as well. Where and it depends who you're, you know, who owns the company and who the shareholders are. But I think that's another really important thing to have, you know, a real alignment between the shareholders and the owners and, and the people in the business. I mean, it sounds like a glib thing to say, but I, I think that's really true. I think you can have a sort of, you know, a VC type ownership structure, which has a very different, you know, very, very clearly they're looking for value and they want to get out, they want an exit and the decisions that that will be made are definitely need you know, not the ones that the guys in the business would make. Yeah. And, uh, 
yes, of course, you've got to make money. You have to do that. But that is the challenge. It's having some alignment between, you know, the board and the, the individuals in the business. But in a nice, friendly, good intention business, you know, you need some pretty hard commercial values as well. And, uh, and balancing that is really difficult, I think. So what would you say to somebody who's in that situation? You know, here you are, you finally build a business that on paper actually looks viable. It's got, the, it's got real potential to scale but they need money. What would be your recommendation for them to maybe take into consideration before they finally decide to go with one particular party? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a, a tricky one for me. My experience doesn't yeah. really stretch. I mean, I haven't, I haven't, you know, I haven't gone out and looked for funding myself. I've just seen it happen. So, you know, I haven't experienced the direct stress of going through that. Yeah. You know, finding seed funders and Venture capital that fits with your intentions is, is, is ideally what you want to do, but that probably is going to come from smaller businesses rather than going to the, you know, the big funds, certainly who are, you know, who are playing in multiple markets yeah. and are really in the numbers game. Because at the end of the day, they, they make a decision based on, you know, whether they think the value's there and where it's going to get to, and you're going to be the end of the, the receiving end of that at some point. So my expertise isn't isn't really the 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 seed capital market but i would say if you can keep it small and work with people who feel like they have that sort of fit and are perhaps focus more around your specific space that's where uh, i would try to look first certainly okay um, thank you yeah. well let's maybe then go back to to where you are now in the current situation in terms of your leadership approach and and what is your belief on how to motivate this generation we're finding ourselves in? You know, what are some of the key things you've learned and see that seems to be really working from your perspective? So from, from my point of view, uh, my experience, the, the things that have worked for me have been that relationship. It's about, it's about the way you, you're trying to know everybody who you work, who does work, work in your team. I mean, I personally, I like small teams because it's much easier to do that. In big teams really again, keeping those connections and, and trying to understand as much as you can about, about the individuals. It's, it's, it's so much about those relationships because without those, then you, you are a kind of figurehead and you're not necessarily somebody that they can really connect with and therefore will be, will, will, will be towed along by. So my approach has always been, a, it's been a, a, I, I told you I didn't read many uh, leadership books, but it's been a very informal one. I've yeah. kind of really felt my way through it. And I've had some teams, you know, some small teams, and I've had some sort of teams and, you know, a hundred people here or there and some range. But I think, yeah, for me, I've tried not to present a kind of, you know, you know, a, a wall and a, and a tough image. It's been probably for me, it's gone the other way too much. I, I don't want them all to be my friends, but I think it's important that you have that relationship. And tr- I mean, it, trust is so critical, yeah. right? I mean, it's, and maybe that's what, you're doing behind all this in, in, you know, subconsciously is really building trust. And, and for me, the way you build trust is by having those relationships, talking to the guys and showing them that you understand what they're doing. I think it's easy to lose sight in senior management of, of what people are doing in the, the far reaches of the business. And I think getting involved in their day-to-day stuff and just showing that you understand what they're doing if you're not making decisions at that level all the time is really important as well. So yeah. it's about trying that outreach into the team and just keeping keeping the connections 
live there, you know. Warm. How do you balance that whole don't be my friend, but we stay connected? So I think that's a lot of challenge for some people, you know, because you start to spend a lot of time and then you start going out and you have this friendship. How have you found finding a healthy balance between we've got a great working relationship, but I'm still somebody who's your boss or, you know, what's your kind of... Yeah, I find I'm, um, I think because I'm, because of the way my, my career's moved and from a, a sort of much more formal type of industry that I used to be in where I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really believe, really believe the whole, you know, believe it all, you know, moving into something that's for me fits much better and is much sort of, from that point of view, feels softer and, and you know, and, and more comfortable. I've actually moved more towards the bring them in and, and, and be friends and don't worry about it. It works much better in small teams than it, yeah. than it does with larger ones. You can't do it with larger ones because if you, you know, but you can with your first line have a pretty close relationship and I've not always socialized with them, but I think you can, you can build the respect by, you know, and the trust um, by having those sort of regular conversations and meetings and just, just, just showing you really care what, about what's going on. Yeah. Uh, but you can't do that all the way down to the organisation if it's a big team. I think yeah. with a small team, you can more. I mean, the place I'm in now, I mean, I'm, I don't have a team, which is a wonderful place to be <laughs> from my point of view. My, my leadership requirements now are, are spread across a, a group of different partners. I mean, they're not within the company I work with, but I'm running a project that is has six partners and customers uh, across a wide range of sort of topics. And again, that's about building trust. I think showing that you can, you know, you understand the issues yeah. that each of them, they're all different. They're different parts, different companies in different sectors, understanding that what those issues that they face are and showing that you, you get that and you know, just not overly heavy handed can be helpful. Yeah. So I, I guess one of the interesting things we're now seeing with, with, the world we're living in is is people are suffering from a lot of stress and anxiety and the stress and anxiety is building much more issues with mental health and whatnot from your experience what has been some of the the coping mechanisms that you've been able to understand and learn that maybe you can share with our listeners around how they can be or can find it easier to manage the world that they're working in and if anything yeah, no, I, I definitely, I have some, quite a lot of personal experience of it. And I th- think it's quite dif- difficult until you you kind of been into the real stress and anxiety sort of situation to know what those triggers might be. Because yeah. the first time it kind of can come up and bite you and you, you don't really know. But yeah. then I think as a leader, and that is a really important point, I've had quite a bit of that in some of the relationships with some of the people who've, uh, who worked in my teams. Yeah. Having had experience myself has been really helpful because I, I think being able to, you know, empathize and support in that situation is, is really important. So I would hope, like to think I've been able to give a little bit of advice in those areas with people who've, who've, who've been suffering from those. So what would you say to either a current leader or a future leader who knows that these things might be coming up? What would you recommend that they should start to consider or become more aware of? Or I think you need a, an environment in the organization, which is listening, you know, okay. which, where you can talk to, you need somebody you can, you can, you can go and talk to and not, just as a, it needs to be needs to be taken seriously within the organisation. They need to really believe it. I'm delighted to say that's one of the things about the, the new organisation we're becoming part of. They seem to be very taking that very very seriously. So, you 
really can go and talk to somebody about occupational health type of issues. And yeah. they're quite proactive about it as opposed to passive about it. So I think having having a network, an environment where people feel they can go and talk to somebody is is just so important. I didn't actually, until quite late on, I didn't really feel that I had that support. And I went through a few phases of quite difficult that you just, I, I just kind of toughed out on my own. And yeah. I think uh, I was probably even though some of those were quite difficult periods, I was probably lucky in that I managed to sort of get through those under my own steam. Yeah. I've seen a lot of other people who haven't done, who've, who've you know, found it much more difficult than, than that. And then it's become a, a real problem and taken time to, to resolve. So you really need to be able to foster that environment. I think as a, as a leader that people really know that they can come and talk to you. I mean, that's really, really important. And that again, builds a huge amount of trust. I think if you can, genuinely people believe that you're going to listen to them yeah so i i I think if you've been through that sort of stuff know what the triggers are and just be very very alert and you know you you understand where you're not always easy to to do but try to understand where you know you see signs that are what what else what might have been some of the signs for you or what do you see as some classic signals where you think hold on maybe i should be sitting down with this individual and having a chat what are some of those triggers that you've picked up on or just from your own experience? The thing that, that becomes apparent to me is people become distant. They kind of detach. And I've experienced that as well. And I think you can tell that's quite a, quite a good sign. Not a good sign, but it's, it's, an <laughs> it's a clear sign yeah. that somebody is, is struggling when they're starting to distance themselves, you know, not socialize, disappear off, you know, spend time on their own. If they're not talking to people, I think that's a... I know how that feels. You, you, you feel like you're, you're just not capable and you're saying stupid things. So that's one flag that I've noticed definitely that uh, you, know, you can be aware of. Just, 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 then it's, the, it's how you approach people to try and raise the issue that's quite challenging as well because yeah. some people aren't in a position where they, they want to be open. So again, I think you need to, that's just about trying to get that message across in a sort of broad way. In, in an environment where you think that person might be, you know, to make them aware that there are people who will listen to them. In some cases, I've had people who've, who've been quite open about it, and, and I think that's great. And so that's the, that's the thing, I think, that really important thing that many companies are doing now and, and really encouraging people to come out and speak out if they think there's some, some problem. And I think that is becoming much more widespread, and that's a, a fantastic thing because it's yeah. a... It's a it's a terrible thing for for anybody to be in a position where they're you know you're at sea and and really detached from from the environment you're working in through some sort of mental illness. So kind of moving from that, and thank you for your insight, and I appreciate it. Where do you stand on the battle between the pursuit of perfection and good enough? Ha! This links to the previous point, and I think it links to maybe I, I touched on the beginning. This some of us are probably are perfectionists who have a lot of drivers about working hard, being perfect, you know, hurrying up and doing everything as much as you can. And, and those lead to those kind of, th- th- those people are in a sort of potentially in this insecure overachiever sort of category where, yeah. you know, we, we want to do better. We kind of want to compete. We're super conscientious and that's not healthy. And I think perfectionism is a yeah, one of the key pillars of that, and I think it's, I think it's a, the dirtiest word in the English yeah, language, right? And I'm and I'm guilty, totally guilty of it. And I still am. 
I still see that it causes stress in me because I I will not, you know, I will not let something go out. And it's all my own. If I'm not having a team, I do the stuff myself, but I, I can't let something go out that I know isn't isn't absolutely right. So it's unhealthy. I see it in in my daughter, you know, we try and work hard to encourage her not to feel she has to do everything <laughs> to absolutely, be absolutely perfect. Because, uh, yeah, the 80-20 thing, I mean, that extra 20% or like 10% or whatever it is, causes 80% of the stress. Yeah. Um, so where am I? In theory, I absolutely believe we shouldn't be perfect and we should find a balance in practice. You know, I'm one of those people who finds it quite hard to practice that, it's, you know, to, to not be perfect. So, so I guess maybe to kind of close it all off in terms of where we are in terms of timing, what would you recommend to other perfectionists out there? Because let's be honest, we exist in everything, but what have been some of the things that allows you to not fall into that trap or at least be better at uh, managing that perfection concept for yourself? Yeah, practice. I mean, letting it go is really hard. I don't think I've mastered it yet. And what advice would I give? Well, how about that? I mean, what advice would you give your daughter now? As, yeah, as yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, it, that's, that's it. I mean, on the one hand, you wanted to try and go a little bit above the apps, the minimum, of course we do, yeah. but we are open about it. I mean, we just try and explain that you don't need to get it. You don't need to get it all right. However, it's quite ingrained within the psyche, you know, your reaction to that. Those of us who kind of feel the need to do everything to the, to the sort of 99th degree or more, it's quite a hard thing to get out of. So it's probably quite deep-seated and probably comes from somewhere quite, you know, early on in your, yeah. your upbringing. And I think from a leader's point of view, that's probably an important thing to make your team aware that you're not driving them into the dirt here. It doesn't all have to be perfect. It has to be good. It has to be good enough. So say it, say it again, but don't expect it to sort of bite immediately. I think people take a while to, to really change their habits in this way. Tim? All right. Thank you very much for your time. It has been a real pleasure. No, great. Yeah, it's been great. I really enjoyed your insights. Thanks very yeah. much. Yeah, thank you.